the Bullpen Sessions. This is Patrick Lillis. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. Uh, excited to share this week's conversation with Jim Lebrecht. Uh, he was another keynote speaker at the Southeast Theater Conference, sound designer, disability rights activist, and also filmmaker. He co-produced and co-directed with Nicole Newman uh, the 2021 Oscar-nominated feature documentary Crip Camp. And the movie's great. It's incredible, obviously worthy of Oscar nomination and, and worth checking out and watching. You know, it's funny, when we were talking, I thought, oh, I'm going to build it. I'm going to start with how did your sound career design career start and, you know, how do we get the movie? But we launched into the conversation right at that. And, um, you know, it's extraordinary how it came about. And just really, I love the conversation. I also, I also liked hearing, you know, how he came to sound design and how he came to be, you know, interested in it and having skills at it, but wanting to do it and, and not letting anything stop him. And then was thinking about the ex- idea of accessibility and creating opportunities for people. And I was thinking about it because I saw the college collab play at Mississippi State. And um, one of the things Jim said in his keynote speech is like theaters will be institutions, not just theaters, will be accessible when they want to be and more accessible. And I think, how do we make them want to be? And you can't make somebody want to be. So you have to do the work of creating environments and opportunities for people to interact with people other than themselves and people like them. And how do they get comfortable being in diverse company? And I thought, uh, I was just thinking about that, the accessibility idea, because Mississippi State is where we went to see Jake Brash's play, Our Tempest, and they did a great job. And Gretchen, who's the director there, it's the second time I've worked with her through the farm, and both times she double cast the play, which is double the work for her. You know, it's not required for the program. And, and this time, and both times she did it because there were roles written for people that would be authentic to their experience or had the opportunity to be authentic to their experience that aren't very common to be, you know, and these are new plays. And of course that's happening. And, that, and I think she double cast, it's happening more is what I meant to say, in in roles that are not about identity, but people of specific identities are in the play. And Gretchen created the opportunity of double casting because she wanted to create more opportunity for, for actors to be in the play. And I think it was it was really special. And the students all did great work and got to see the play twice. And of course, got to see both casts do the play. And they each brought their own vision to it. And just very appreciative, you know, especially being this week's conversation on, you know, creating access and creating advocacy for, you know, people who need it to be included in all ways. And I thought, uh, I thought, just wanted to say Gretchen did a great job with that. Also, the play was fantastic, and Jake and I had a great time and really impressed with the students' work and allowed, once again, to see the play and what the rewrites were. And another thing to talk about is one of the schools, the other school that did the play was Austin P. I know I talked about that on the pod, but four of the cast members came up to see the play, and that was great because they were really encouraging. They liked the design elements because they did more of a workshop production, but they were also really encouraging and supportive of the script changes. But the other character, the other actors playing the roles that they had played earlier, they, you know, felt a bond. It was clearly not competitive. It was encouraging and. That was also just great to see. I like the spirit of that. And so I'm, you know, just buoyed by the whole experience of all of that 
So with that, you know, I think I'm going to share the conversation. It was one of it was the last conversation at the Southeast Theater Conference, and I I loved it. I loved every place we went, and there in the in the talk, and uh, how he builds his career is impressive. And then it gets to Jim, and it gets to working in film and television, and very excited to share it with you. And with that, play ball. Yeah, well, I uh, I have been, you know, as a sound mixer for primarily documentaries. Um, Nicole was one of my uh, earlier clients, and I had worked on three of her previous feature-length documentaries. And, you know, seeing the power of documentary film and also kind of seeing what I knew were documentaries around disability issues or themes, um, I thought there were other stories out there that I hadn't seen yet, and I was pitched her on some ideas over lunch and but when i said to her look i i actually would love to see a a documentary about my summer camp i think there's a connection there to the disability rights movement and uh i also said you know 1970 early 1970s a summer camp for folks like me with disabilities run by hippies like what could go wrong right (laughs) and and in reality, Kempshner was just a remarkable, nurturing and uh, a, a, a place, especially for a young guy like me at the age of fifteen. So we, you know, we we thought we might do recreations of summer camp. You know, find a place, hire actors with disabilities, and uh, fortunately, we didn't have to do that. Yeah, that footage is incredible. And, uh, you know, it's like somebody was making a documentary at the time, whether they knew it or not. And Well, I mean, they kind of were in that the People's Video Theater really took this new technology at this time, Sony Portapack, this luggable, I would call it portable, but there was a big-ass deck uh, that went along with the camera. Um, uh, You know, they wanted to use this technology uh, and use it as a tool for marginalized communities. And and they get their name, the People's Video Theater, from the fact that they would set up like uh, a little video uh, installation like in Greenwich Village, let's say, and, you know, had the camera there and had monitors so, you know, people could see themselves and talk, which is just, it wasn't, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then, right? You know, well, we didn't even yeah. have a little handheld camcorder thing, barely. You know, no, I mean, I Lord knows, uh, but you know, they wanted to, you know, uh, use have people have this available as a tool. And in reality, I mean, there was a scene uh, in their footage of them playing back some of the footage for the camp director and some of the counselors in upper. Uh, management is not the right word uh, and uh, showing them some of the stuff they, they had um, videotaped and uh, so that you know my hat's off to them really uh, and you know Patrick I, I, I would say that one of the things that was most stunning to me as we were starting to work with this footage and was the fact that they engaged us like any group of teenagers it wasn't paternalistic or uh 
infantilizing or anything. I mean, somebody else could have come in and said to the counter actor, tell us how you're taking care of these poor unfortunate souls. And they're like, hey, this is who we are. Let's make a video, you know, let's yeah. about your camp. And well, also, there was a moment I felt like where you, you know, you saw campers interviewing each other, you know, which was yeah. really empowering. Sure. And then there's really an amazing scene um, uh, near the end of the camp section that we called Message to Parents. And because we had said to them, you know, we'd like to make a video for our parents to talk about how they're being overprotective and and such. And so, and this roundtable talk um, was remarkable, um, probably for the one thing which was um, kind of this, you know, understanding we really had this kind of common issues with our parents and and it's part of the beauty of Camp Jeanette was we weren't overprotected. There was, you know, we stayed up late. We, there was minimal protection. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing. It kind of looks like it was like freewheeling and stuff. But in reality, you know, we, you know, we were, well, let me say we were rarely in danger. You know, every summer camp, you know, there's all sorts of things can happen. And, you know, but they wanted to provide us a, you know, some are like any other, you know, young adults, you know. I also appreciated that for the movie when the when the counselor said, oh, I just got hired for this camp. I didn't have any training. I didn't know what the camp was, you know, and I thought that was really great. When you said early on, when you said it was empowering. What did that do for you when it when how did it empower you? What did it do? Just that. it. Well, I, uh, you know, I. Look, I, I was born with spina bifida. Um, I've never walked. I've used a wheelchair my whole life. Um, uh, uh, once I was old enough to reach the handles of the push chair. And, uh, but I didn't go to school with folks with disabilities. Um, summer camp was the only time that I kind of interacted with people with disabilities. And um, and I had gone to another camp that was a little bit more that paternalistic or, you know, I had to go to bed by like 8.30 and stuff. And whereas at Camp Trinette, it was like, you know, we were up half the night anyway. And, uh, but you got to remember, this is a time where um, the anti-war movement was going on, women's lib, um, black power, somebody liberation movements were going on and you know as judy kind of explains it uh to me judy human who well who was a had been a camper and then was a counselor who um was there at, at and she's in the film judy went on to be this incredible icon and still is actually she's an uh, amazing uh person but you know she said you know we would talk about what we need you know, late at night in the bunk. And I'll have to say, we didn't have quite such lofty discussions in the boys' bunk. But uh, thank goodness for Judy. And, uh, and but meeting her, uh, a woman who uh, was a wheelchair user over, she had contracted uh, polio as a, uh, I think around 18 months. 
she had sued to get a teaching license in New York or teacher position in New York because she passed the license and she passed everything, but they wouldn't give it to her. They felt like she was anything from a fire hazard to Lord knows what else. And she prevailed in that suit. And as a 15 year old who really kind of feels like, oh my gosh, you know, the world is unfair anyway, you know, pick your topic. Right. Uh, <laughs> Um, um, it was really empowering to realize that we could fight back and win. And so that got me really kind of fired up because I, you know, you know, back in the early seventies, there weren't curb cuts. There weren't handicapped parking spots. There were no civil rights protections for people with disabilities. And um, it was not, um, easy negotiating in this world that basically was not built for us. Yeah. Not expecting people like myself or with other disabilities to participate. And um, so um, anyway, that sparked me a great deal. And uh, just to jump a little bit, how did that find yeah. you to the theater? How did that get you to sound design? Was it, I have this feeling of <laughs> era. I'm like, it feels like rock and roll, you know? Yeah. Well, um, fortunately, I'd gone to public school basically from the middle of first grade. I was an experiment in my school district, but I had a special ed teacher for like kindergarten and part of first grade who told my parents that you got to try to get this kid into public school because I was, you know, I'm, I guess at my old age of 65, I realized I'm, I'm, I'm fairly smart, you know. I can hold Come to terms with that by now. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As my beard gets longer, uh, and uh, so I have this great uh, kind of you know yellowed piece of paper or two-page letter that basically said, "Look, you know, this is going to be an experiment, and here's what we won't do or what we will do in regards to getting me into school." But that saved my uh, saved my bacon. Yeah, let's put it that way. And so uh, I kind of fell into the drama clique in high school, uh, probably around the 10th or 11th grade. And I had a reel to reel tape deck, I had a turntable. And I thought, well, maybe I could do like some sound effects work or something. Um, and so I wound up doing that and a little bit of acting in high school. But uh, um, but I, 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 I liked it. I liked the people in theater, right? You know, I don't do much in the way of theater nowadays, right? Right. You know, I, I don't miss, you know, having to stay up till three in the morning doing notes after a preview, but I miss the people. I yeah. miss the people a great deal. I just wanted to talk, just wanted, because I know you do primarily film and, and television, I'm, uh, but for the 10 years of the beginning. I'm curious because I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you got into it. And I know you started at Berkeley Rep. Um, I like hearing how the start in high school, because the truth is I found my home there around ninth and 10th grade, the same thing, you know, like, oh, I belong here. And uh, these, I belong here with these people, you know, <laughs> that that's, was, that, you know, that's my tribe. Yeah. You know, is often what I think people feel. You know, we're not the people that 
anyway. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't have to explain to you or anybody who's going to listen to this podcast who we, you know, for the most part, like who we are and why, you know, we pull together as a. I'm curious what it was for you in the beginning that got you in and what got you when what got you to Berkeley? Part of me was asking, and when I said the technology change, I also want to acknowledge like somewhere in the early, early 90s, it felt like sound had gone to this whole other level and and possibility of what can be done in the theater. You know, not that it wasn't intricate before, but it was getting more and more detailed and more and more nuanced. And uh, and I we can talk about that, but I'm just curious about like that first door that opened and and how did it happen? Do you remember? Yeah, well, I do. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I laugh about it now, but when I was going to trying to choose a college, I wanted to find a, a school that had, um, you know, a, a major in sound somehow. Um, and because I wanted to literally work on the Grateful Dead's sound crew. Um, and, uh, and so UC San Diego had a, an acoustics major and I was able to get into UCSD. Um, but as I found out pretty quickly, that's a whole bunch of math and physics. Not my forte, not my, and as I was failing pre-calculus, I went down to the drama department. It's now a theater and dance department, but drama department and said, "Hey, I uh, I'd like to work on sound for a you know a production." And they said, "Great, we'll make you the head of the sound crew on this production we've got going on that's happening um, outdoors." And it was a combination of Oedipus and Antigone. And there was a. Um, uh, a, a student who was uh, one of his doctorate things was the sound design for this production. Uh, and, it, you know, that kind of shows you how, uh, you know, that was not a hard door to open. But the, the beauty of this was that if anyone's ever been to UC San Diego, the Central Library, which looks like a mothership basically sitting in the middle of eucalyptus trees, but there is this large, flat, concrete plaza if one could call it there, that they set up the production. And so, um, and we had five sound operators because of the idea of just one person being able to run a bunch of decks at one time, I don't think it quite gotten through him. You know, I, there I was, I knew how to pop wheelies in my, my push chair over cables and such. And um, anyway, I'm, you know, I started meeting friends and I did a good job on that. So, and just, so it was kind of like the traditional track of, well, I'm doing sound for, um, for productions, and I, I demanded a grade versus pass, not pass, <laughs> and uh, which really helped my GPA. You know, my 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 G was it the GPA? And uh, anyway, um, and then you know people were applying, you know, to go to summer stock, you know, working in summer theater. And um, I uh, was able to uh, get a job at the Utah Shakespeare Festival in the summer of 1976. And um, because I had a professor that um, had designed there and uh, as a set designer, a costume designer. 
And, you know, that's been kind of um, what really helped my career were people who were, this is not quite a pun, but standing up for me. Yeah. And saying, you know, yeah, the guy can't walk, but yet he does great work and he's, you know, he's really good. And the fact of the matter is, is that like there were, you know, many places in theaters that I couldn't get to in my wheelchair. Uh, but I had grown up in a split level house and my parents never moved once I was born. And so I would crawl up and downstairs. Um, you know, I didn't have a wheelchair in the house. I was able to, you know, kind of transfer myself into a kind of a rolling, you know, kind of tall stool like office chair to cook in the kitchen. And, you know, I, so perfect for some guy who can't walk and wants to work in theater because I can climb upstairs and I can listen from different areas of the theater and do the work. Um, so with that, um, I'll, I'll try to make this as condensed as possible, but I, uh, I got it the next summer. I went off to um, PCPA, the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts, which was in central California at Santa Maria and uh, uh, Solvang. They had two stages there. And there I met a bunch of people from Berkeley Rep. They were on hiatus during the summer, and I met Paul Dixon, who was their resident sound designer, and Michael Leibert, who was the artistic director, among other people. And um, the next summer, I found out that Paul was leaving the rep, the rep to start a you know new wave or punk band or something. And um, I applied for the job. So you know, Michael Leibert, you know, certainly knew that I was capable of getting around because. The Berkeley Rep was uh, in a converted storefront uh, um, away from downtown Berkeley. Now they've got two right. beautiful theaters in downtown Berkeley um, in which the wheelchair access uh, is really great. Um, but I, you know, Paul told me this great story where uh, he said, you know, before uh, I was offered the job, the managing director kind of said to him, but, you know, Paul, I mean, he can't walk and this place is not accessible the booth basically looked like it had been tacked onto the outside of the building i mean it was just like uh really kind of anyway a little ramshackled and uh said well he can't walk and and he said you know jim is the best sound designer i know and so and then he told me later jim you were the only sound designer right well does it make it a lie nope not at all (laughs) not at all but you know and um, just personally, I got to years, a few years into things. I was able to hire Paul back as a sound operator and, uh, it was a wonderful friendship. That's amazing. I, did they, the fact that you, you know, I did, I watched I, how you described your ability to move around is great that you have that ability, but did they eventually try to figure out how to make that sound booth, you know, more accessible? <laughs> well, uh, well, when I got there in the fall of 78, um, there were plans afoot for building a theater uh, in downtown Brooklyn. So, uh, and by, you know, so and it was going to be much better. And in fact, I looked at the plans with the architect because there was one area where there was a step that could easily have been a ramp. And I said, we need a ramp there, which if anybody watches uh, 
the documentary Crip Camp. Right at the beginning, you see some footage of me from a PSA back in the early 80s. And that ramp I'm coming down was the ramp that would have been a step. Um, there was an elevator shaft <laughs> in the building, uh, but when it opened, there was no elevator. And it's like, and said, well, you know, and fundraising wise, no one, you know, you can do things like, hey, 250,000, we'll put your name on the theater, you know, and such. Um, and fortunately, there was um, a woman who I was friends with who was on the board. And when she found out, she said, we got to, I'm going to put up half the money right now. You all pick up the cost because we got to get that elevator in there. And six months later, there was an elevator in that shaft with, um, I mean, not to sound self grandiose, but uh, um, a little plaque in there saying, you know, for my friend Jim Lebrecht. Wow, that's great. And it's, you know, it's not grandiose, it's true. I, I'm going to talk about transitioning to film and television because you worked, I know you worked at Berkeley for up 10 years and then you moved in to that. But I, I want to talk about the advocacy because what's, when I'm hearing the success about this is it's, first of all, you showing up and also you overcoming many barriers just because like you said, you can do the work. And, but then people quote unquote, standing up for you. And I, you know, I've been thinking about advocacy and like what happens. And I think it's people change happens because we hire people we're around and we're familiar with, you know, and yeah. how do we change that? Because how, because we have to become familiar with people who aren't in our circle. You have to work. It. I mean, I think as I say it, I go, is that just a simple answer of like, we have to work at making our circle more inclusive all the time. Well, you know, some of this is basically people have perceptions of folks with disabilities that are based on a lot of different things, right? And certainly uh, decades ago, people would see like the Jerry Lewis muscular dystrophy telethon. And they were using, you know, kids with you know, MD to raise funds by saying, look at these poor, unfortunate souls, they're, they're trapped in their metal prisons. And it was just like, and it really just, you're going to hire somebody like that who's pitiful. And, uh, and so really, I, actually for the disability community, a lot of folks, that telethon was kind of a, a focus of demonstrations and because it was doing so much harm. Um, and um, so, and, you know, there were some television shows like Ironsides, which was interesting. He was a, a New York, a San Francisco, like, police guy that had been shot on the line and he used a wheelchair and he solved crime. Thank you. Um, uh, there's a whole comedy routine I think I can make on that show. But it was really important for me to see as a kid somebody with a disability. So I, uh, a long-winded way of saying, look, you know, if you don't, see somebody with a disability working, you may not think that they're capable to do the job. Could I have someone with a disability as a stage manager or as a set designer or as an actor? And, um, but there are, have been people in theater who have been able to, you know, 
push their careers along. And, um, and I think that when people um, kind of see us in these positions, their minds are opened up a little bit. And, and in this day of strong reckoning with how we are regarding people that are unlike ourselves in this world, um, that adding access to DEI is really important. You know, diversity, equity, and inclusion needs access. And, um, and that's something I've certainly been pushing for um, in my life, saying, look, we know that there have been initiatives that have helped improve the numbers of women working in film or uh, people of color or almost pick your marginalized group and that you can apply this to people with disabilities but there's a certain amount of fear and worry and that comes from i think usually we're fearful of things we don't really understand and um so i i i've definitely seen a tide turn you know, uh, you know, theaters are being built with wheelchair accessible catwalks, which like never thought I'd never thought I'd see that. Yeah. Oh, it always used to be that awkward, terrible spiral, narrow, right. you know. Yeah. There was never yeah, it, yeah, in the in in the documentary Kirk Camp, uh there's a shot of me climbing up a kind of a, a, a permanent ladder. Um, uh, going you know straight up, and I'm like pulling my body up there to get up to the grid, which really wasn't something I did every day. Uh, it was like I think I did it twice. You know, one day I just got pissed pissed off at my intern who couldn't, you know, just like wasn't getting the wiring on a speaker correct or something. And I and I climbed up there and I you know I I fixed it, but uh. For that photo shoot, I really made sure that my suspenders were on really, really tight, so my pants didn't fall off as I will climb that. Um. <laughs> uh, I think that it's great, and I think the idea that you can uh, that that the change is happening. It's interesting to talk about the. You're right when the representation matters. It's interesting to hear you say it that you know you can do it because you saw someone do it. But I think it's, you're right, it's the other people knowing like, wait, I saw somebody do it. It's possible. Well, I really didn't see, actually. I mean, my point right, being- Not your job. I, meant, I guess when you said the actor, the Ironside, you know, that idea. Oh, right, yeah. Just, but um, even representation everywhere, it does, that's the impact, you know. Right, but yet, you know, Raymond Burr was not really a wheelchair user. And, um, and, Authentic casting has become um, really one of the most important initiatives of people with disabilities are working in the film industry is that, you know, we no longer um, accept the fact that you're going to have a non-disabled actor playing a character with a disability. Um, and, but therein lies the rub because they want to hire people for roles like that who have box office draw. But if people with disabilities aren't being hired as actors and aren't given the opportunities to build their career and their fan base, how can they become a box office draw? Well, it's, it's, it takes time, but it, it is 
uh, certainly just starting with um, making sure people with disabilities are in roles uh, where there are characters with disabilities. And um, and so I'm, you know, I'm really hopeful. People like Ali Stroker, who won the, yeah. the Tony for Oklahoma. Oh, my gosh. What an incredible talent. And what an incredible production that was so kind of, uh, I don't have a better word for it, but inclusive. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a better world, word out there that probably has to do with not just in, inclusive feels just like a catchphrase. Or well, word. it was revelatory because it also looked at the musical itself in an unromantic way and yeah. put it to a reality of what was happening. So it was revelatory that way and revelatory in its casting and, you know, just exciting that people could see everything in a new way, as opposed to the romance of what that piece had gotten to be and sort of in the romance is one broad brush of what a beautiful morning or whatever, you know. Uh, well, you know, uh, I'm just a girl who can't say no. Isn't that what she was saying? You yeah. Know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, but her star is rising. And you know, she had a small role in uh, Only Murders in the Building. Um, uh, and I kind of been tracking her career and kind of know that really she is, uh, uh, she's, you know, certainly uh, somebody that we're going to be hearing from for a very long time. And, um, and she was uh, even kind of starred in a kind of one of the, I think it's Lifetime, Christmas, uh, you know, movies, you know, there's like, oh my God, when I realized the fan base for not only these romantic kind of stories on that, on that streamer, but that the Christmas shows, I mean, there are people who just, yeah, maybe July and they want to watch them, you know? Um, and, and so, well now, and then this isn't like checking a box. This isn't like saying, okay, we've now had our, had our disabled, actor or actress but it is really saying that look we are part of society we're 25 percent of the population and why not see folks with disabilities in roles that weren't necessarily even written for somebody with a disability um and you know that's really my my hope for the film and television industry is that you know, we will we will follow the same trajectory as other groups that have been marginalized. In that, it used to be that if you saw someone, you know, um, in the past, let's say, you know, that was um, African American, you know, way back in the seventies or even before, it was like stories just around their blackness and getting, you know, dealing with living in the ghetto or something. And and now we don't even think twice about. Um, seeing characters, uh, um, you know, who are African-American who are just there as one of the people in the office or, you know, um, you know, a detective on a TV show. And, I, and we need to get there. And, um, but we will. Yeah, I, I believe we will. And I think it is going in the right direction. And I, I wanted to talk because a little bit about the, like the Ford Foundation grant, right? The, the Future Fellows. Is that, that yeah, a disability? Future, yeah, disability futures. Yeah, disability futures is okay. So I know they're awarding people money, and I tried to do a little research, and wanted to know what. Besides, uh, money's great. I love money, 
it helps, right? But what else does that? What else does, does it really make the world go round? I don't know if it makes it go around, but it certainly makes it easier. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Money can't buy your happiness, but it gets you pretty close. But you know, yeah. I can I can lease it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I'm okay with that because well, I was thinking about the money, which I think is really important. I'm wondering what else it does. Uh, it, look, the Disability Futures Fellowship was Ford and the Mellon Foundation together. I was part of the first cohort of 20, I believe it was 20 artists. And uh, it was some of the most incredible people, um, folks that I had known for a while, uh, peripherally at times. But, and I think that A, just having those two foundations saying these are important artists to be supporting was uh, an incredible gesture. Um, the Ford Foundation is really, I've had more interactions with the Ford Foundation and they've really been supporting disability um, rights, disability justice, uh, and, and, and artists. And it's been really, we got funding for Crip Camp through, you know, Ford as, you know, as well. And, but the money, uh, you know, was unrestricted. And to be honest with you, uh, you know, it just was kind of perfect because in the aftermath of Crip Camp and it being released and such, uh, you know, last year I didn't, especially with the pandemic, um, didn't have a lot of opportunities to work. And I, for various sundry reasons, asked if I get the money back in 2021 versus 2020. And it just really helped me get through the year. Yeah, well, that's where the money is also great because of the pandemic. And one thing, what you said that helped, that, that dropped in is there is something incredible about an institute, a foundation in size of Ford saying, these are artists we support. These are and we recognize because the other people who are partnering with those foundations and organizations and foundations underneath them go, oh, we should look at those artists too. And we should be aware of them. And I think that institutional recognition is really important. Well, they, um, you know, indeed it is. And there was this kind of an amazing moment where I guess it was almost a couple of years ago now, Ford Foundation really kind of put out a, kind of a you know lengthy statement around their commitment to diversity. People with disabilities were not mentioned at all. And when that was brought to Darren Walker's uh, attention, he issued really what was quite an amazing, I don't, you know, apology and, you know, saying this is what we're going to be doing. And this is an incredible, you know, oversight. And um, I think they really, you know, kind of backed that up with, with lots of action so it does take philanthropic organizations like that to, who are real leaders to kind of set an example for the rest of the kids on the playground. Yeah. You know? And um, um, I, I think, you know, it was, anyway, they've been, um, you know, quite remarkable. In fact, they hired Judy Human uh, as a senior fellow for like a year to write a white paper around disability and media and such, which was really, um, really great and in fact there was this wonderful meeting in new york where judy had gathered all these different people including ali stroker and myself you know myself uh and it's like you know it was just great being in this room with not everybody was disabled but it was a combination thereof and to be able to talk about what the needs are and what the status was and was uh just uh i i still it brings a huge smile to my face 
It, you know, one of the yeah, it's it's amazing that putting that center and I'm uh, thinking about the movie. So funny. The question that I'm going to ask that I have to ask in my mind that I was like going to say for the end is how'd you get to the executive producers of Michelle and Barack and how did they get partnered into the film and or become part of it? Yeah, um, the, the President Obama and um, Michelle wound up being executive producers on the film. They had started, as we were still working on the film, they had a, we found out they had started Higher Ground, which was their yeah. company to produce media and such. And they had a deal with Netflix. And we just, our team started doing some outreach. And uh, Howard Girdler, who's an amazing guy, who's our, uh, one of our, you know, uh, executive producers, reached out to Priya Swaminathan, who was the kind of started running the organization and said, you got to see the trailer for our film. We said, we don't even have an office yet. You know, we don't exactly know. And, but then a few months later, uh, I think it was Josh Braun from Submarine, which is one of the kind of, um, you know, big kind of companies that sales agents saw her and did the same thing. And then she said, okay, send me the trailer. And then we heard from Priya about three weeks later saying, I can't stop watching your trailer. I don't know what you guys have done here, but I'd like to come up from Los Angeles and talk. And we spent the day with her going through all that luscious black and white footage and just kind of getting to know each other. And 15 minutes after she left the building, probably waiting for her Uber to pick her up, she called Nicole and I said, hey, we want to, we want to roll up our sleeves with you. And, uh, you know, the president, Mrs. Obama, feel the same way. And, and they um, have been incredible partners. You know, they were, um, you know, with their deal with Netflix, it, they won't take everything. Netflix won't take everything, but they were incredible partners there going over cuts with us. And I got to say, Netflix was pretty fabulous also, that we really wanted them to embrace really disability um, the community in a way that was, and so they, you know, hired folks to do some, you know, kind of education and such people like Alice Wong, who's a, an amazing writer and leader in the disability justice movement. And, um, and they wound up making uh, uh, Crip Camp available in more languages for uh, captioning and audio description than they had ever done before. And, um, and then through a suggestion from, from Hobbit Grimm uh, to um, if there could be a script that people who are deaf blind could download so they could transfer that into their braille readers to experience the film. They did that. I mean, they didn't bat an eyelash. We just said, this would be really, really important. And they wound up with a 163 page word document. That, and, and so the accessibility and buying into that and is, so so important you know so look the the tide has absolutely changed it'll take hard work and um but even you know in in theater you know you look at a wonderful director like sam gold who uh when he did the glass menagerie um had a disabled actress playing laura and as i've gotten to know more about sam and who he is, that is a man that is really um, dedicated to really um, embracing the disability community in a way that is not charitable or anything else. It's like, 
this is like, this is what we, we do. This is what we have to do. And um, so I'm, a, I'm very happy to know him. Right. Yeah. No, it's great that he did that for the production because you're right. It's like that awareness. And that is a character that is n- known for a disability, you know, right. but, but never played by an actor who authentically comes by it. Well, certainly not in the kind not of... Not on Broadway. Not on Broadway. Maybe it's been played, but yes, not on Broadway. Not at, yeah. not at something of that high profile. Um, what is your process? What's the first thing you do when you when you receive a script and to start to think about how am I going to approach that? Well, I try to just read the script straight through. Um, I, I might underline a couple of things here and there, but I want to kind of experience it without taking sound design notes beyond, you know, maybe flagging something here and there. And then I'll go through and start putting notes in the margins about what the sound design could be. And um, and then from there, the process was, is sitting down with the director and talking about it. Okay, I think, you know, and understanding what the other design elements are. Um, uh, because in, even to this day as a sound mixer for film, you know, it's rare that sound leads. It's usually we are following what we see in regards to visually what's going on and, 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 and such, and we react to that. So, um, you know, I would have a meeting uh, where we talk about what we think the cues are and where they are. And then with that, you know, it was a process of um, coming up with the cue list and, um, you know, what did I want to record versus trying to find an existing library to find things from. Um, and then starting to incorporate that into rehearsal. Yeah, and just bringing it, bringing it into the room, into the world for the experience of it. I'm, I, you know, another thing just to think about notating, when you say notating, are you notating, this is my question, of sounds you're hearing or just the feeling of like, oh, I think there's a transition here. I think there's something that we need to acknowledge this moment is happening. Well, probably the most, one of the most famous sound cues in theater is the, you know, breaking string in the cherry orchard, right? So you will definitely highlight that and circle that and put exclamation marks, uh, you know, uh, you know, on that. Um, um, you know, it's things like, um, you know, asking myself questions like, do we need, you know, you know, what, what kind of background maybe do we need in the scene or um, just kind of delineating what the, the sounds I think that we need, but um, I, look, one of the um, amazing experiences I had was doing My Children, My Africa with Athol Fugard at La Jolla Playhouse in the 80s. And Athol uh, being an incredible playwright, actor, and director. Oh my God, I'm creating art for one of his productions. You know, you know kill me now. Because yeah. I'm, I've, I've, there's nothing more I really, really want. And look, I had, a, I, you know, approximately, let's say, 31 cues that I thought we needed in the play. And I wound up in my uh, hotel room or whatever, where they were putting me up in La Jolla, presenting him with kind of the cues and where I wanted them, you know, for sure after we had talked. And he cut half the cues that I was thinking about. 
but the ones that were left were um, extraordinary. I mean, not that I was like freaking brilliant, but the choices were good. No, they yeah, and he was getting down to what was the essential. Yeah, and look, early in my career, uh, I you know uh, people didn't know what a sound designer, a good sound designer, could do. I had a director who, when he came back for his second show at Berkeley Rep, said to me, "If I had known what you were capable of doing, I would have asked you to do a lot more in the last production." And um, and so there is this education for directors and producers and other people who really control the purse strings and the artistic process of, you know, it, sound is not tangible. You can't hold up a, and say, this is the sound you're going to hear in the show. You, you, you need to talk about it. You need to create it and play it. And, um, and often, you know, hopefully you can play it uh, in a theater. So there's full fidelity. And, and so it's that kind of education of, you know, and also just, you know, working, but sound designers used to not even get their names on the, on the, you know, on the top, you know, the, well, what do they call it in the program? The title page? The title or page yeah. And, and a couple of years ago, they eliminated, eliminated, it didn't live long, but the Tonys eliminated it as an award. And, and the number yeah. one reason is because nobody knew how to vote for it. You know, right which is ridiculous because sound where where it is so intricate and so involved in the storytelling and, and, and all the things you said about environment and, and, and what do we need? And I think it's interesting because I do think it's become more and more vital to our world. Well, let, let me, let me tell you, um, when I started it at the rep, like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, it was a converted, that location before they moved downtown had been a house that got lifted up and was a produce store for a long time. So the ceilings weren't very high. Um, and it was this, like a hundred seat theater and they couldn't do a lot with lighting uh, nor sets, but they could do a lot with costumes and sound. And, and what Paul was, uh, Dixon was able, he did great sound design work. And so there was this institutional history and understanding the power of sound and, you know, giving it as much resources as they, well, I'm, I'm making that part up, but being supportive of it as, you know, because they wound up having, after Paul, having me as a resident, resident sound designer for, for 10 years. So, uh, so there is this beauty of, and in film, it's just kind of the same way in that uh, you can do so much to add to the subtext and the environment um, with sound that, you know, you don't need to see it, but if you hear it and it feels like it's natural to the location, then it just simply adds, you know, and even in documentaries, like, you know, we add in sounds documentaries and it's like, is that cheating? No, you know, when you're out in the field, your microphones are pointed usually at people's faces. And you're not really capturing the environments or what's going on around. And as directors and editors will uh, edit their footage for a specific angle and and um, the belief of what the really the story is, sound design does the same is capable of doing the same thing. So if I want to say that we're in a lousy neighborhood in New York City, um, I might you know put in the background. Um, 
you know, uh, garbage trucks picking up dumpsters, you know, full of garbage and the loud motors and clanking on that. And, uh, you know, there's just many things that we can do, um, even unnoticeable. And I, I, and I did a production out of the Iguana at Berkeley Rep. And I had gotten a hold of these rainforest recordings that a friend had made in Belize. And there was nonstop sound the moment people came into the theater until they left of, you know, bugs and stuff. And there's like a rainstorm and there's a whole bunch of other things that happened during the play. Um, I, there was never a mention of the sound design in any of the reviews. And you know what? I did my job right. Surely I'd love to get some credit for the hard work and such. But for me, that was like, as opposed to being outraged by it, it was just kind of like, you know, it yeah. worked. Right. You it created did, the world. Yeah. It, it you know, didn't say, hey, I've got a sound design happening here right now. It was a natural part of the production. Yeah. I think that's, you know, it's interesting. That's the goal, right? Is to, for us not to notice it, but to have the greatest impact. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as a designer and as a mixer now, I, I keep my mind open really to what other people have to say. Um, and uh, we had a production at Berkeley Rep. Uh, there was a melodrama. And there was a suggestion from the master carpenter that if every time the front, this, the door that was up center opened, we'd hear a, 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 you know, a thunderclap and wind and rain. And when the door closed, you know, the wind and rain goes away and the thunderclap goes down in volume, which was hilarious. I mean, you know, I mean, but so, but Amy had that idea and I went, that is really good. I really like that. It's fitting in with a melodrama. And in fact, the, um, the last time that door opened in uh, the play on the final night, the actor who came in the door um, and closed it, he looked up to the booth and opened the door again. And, ah. I, was waiting, and I was waiting for him because I had rewound a thunderclap and so, and I was watching him and I was right there. And he kind of looked at me up at the booth, like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> Will you? <laughs> so that's great. That's good play. That's good. That's collaboration. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, and my God, you know, can we have fun? Can we be in community? And that's what's exciting about this time now is that it's like we're all kind of coming out of this horrible pandemic. Hopefully that we will not see another surge, but, um, and then we're getting a chance to do what we love and enjoy yeah. and be with people. That's great. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's the benefit. It's really being at the Southeast theater conference was, it's been nice. It's been about 70% of the attendance it usually is. Um, but it's been so nice to see people. And it was one of the last public events I did two years ago was to be here. So mm -hmm. And it does, it starts to feel like, oh, it's normal. Because like we said in the beginning of the conversation, you know, it's my tribe, it's my community. You know, I want to be around the people. It's nice to, it's nice to work via Zoom, but it's, I love being in the room. Well, yeah, I mean, it is those networking opportunities that happen in the bar at the hotel afterwards that are, can cement relationships that will last for decades. But I, I have to say that there's a lesson 
to be learned and held on to that with conferences like this and many others, that a hybrid approach is very important because what happened was that people who were economically disadvantaged or geographically disadvantaged or uh, had mobility or whatever other issues um, could participate. You know, you go to Sundance and a hotel room is going to cost you $800 a night and you can't just stay on a, someone's couch if you're a wheelchair user. You need a, a you know, you need a wheelchair accessible accommodation. And um, so I'm really hoping that people realize that a hybrid situation is not evil, but it's really a way to make sure that you can be as accessible to people as possible. And access, you know, when I talk about access and such, it's not just around people with disabilities. It is really other folks who, you know, gee, I can't go away because I'm a single parent. I got to take care of my kid. But, you know, I work for my theater company here in this location and uh, I want to do a presentation and I want to be on a panel. And so I, I really hope we, as many people as possible, embrace the fact that you can make hybrid work. It's not, um, I mean, there I was a couple of days ago giving a, a keynote um, conversation yeah. from, from Oakland, California, and you all are in, in Memphis. I always like to ask if you have any advice, and the advice can be sound design, career, personal life, advocacy, um, how to how to get a great suit made for you, you know, whatever you. <laughs> well, you have to be nominated for an Academy Award, and then have somebody introduces you to Gucci, and then these kinds of things sometimes happen. Gucci is an incredible company, and they. I was blown away that they wanted to dress me for the Oscars a year ago. And uh, oh my gosh, what an amazing experience. Um, look, I think that the universal kind of answer to a lot of questions is to find your community. Like we talk about uh, us being a tribe, but find your people that think like you. And um, I mean, Michael Leibert in 1968 is a, I think it was a grad student at UC Berkeley. He started a theater company. And here we are, you know, 50 years later or whatever. And it's like, it's, you know, still there. And um, uh, there's going, and now we have this ability to network with people on places like Facebook. And, and uh, so I, I just think that, you know, if you want to get started, um, really try a bunch of different things also. I think, especially, and I'm talking more like towards theater, let's say, you know, if you're interested in theater and like it, not everybody wants to be an actor backstage. And, you know, the great thing about my education at UCSD was that, you know, I had to work in the costume shop. I had to work in the scene shop. I had to, you know, do all these different areas just to kind of, you got to get a broad education. Um, and in reality, even that just made it possible for me to talk with other department heads. So um, don't be shy. Um, I, I have been successful in my career by approaching people who, especially in the film industry, who I idolized or, or you know, knew uh, their work. And that, you know, people can be really generous with their time. And, you know, so don't assume that someone's going to say no to you 
if you want to have an informational conversation or sit down for a cup of coffee. And uh, anyway, that's my advice. That's good. Yeah, that's great. They're not. Don't assume they're going to say no. <laughs> yeah. No. And, you know, one of the rules I've had to learn a few times in my life is that people will treat you the way you treat yourself. So don't be self-facing, you know, don't diminish yourself. Don't. Oh, thank you. Jim, thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much. I loved at the end, just what, what he talked about is the idea of like, hey, you know, if you, you know, find your peer, find your community, find, you know, all that, but but also how you treat yourself is how others will treat you. And, you know, I think about that. I think if you're self-effacing, well, people, you know, may not see you in the stature you want to be seen in. And if, you know, <laughs> he made it clear, don't be a jerk, but also don't undersell yourself. Carry yourself with the confidence. And I think, you know, and how you want to be treated is it's really important to think about that. And, yeah, it was just a really good conversation. I really enjoyed it, and thank you so much. And I was uh, in the other accessibility. I was on a podcast as a guest with Adina Taubman. We are doing her show, The Road Back, which is her journey about mental health and recovery. And the podcast is Indie Art Today. Um, so check that out when we're Dean and I are talking. But what we, what the host asked was, how do we make it accessible? How do we make mental health more accessible when we're talking about accessibility in the industry and you know we talked about a couple of things one of the things we talked about is making sure you're you know paying people more so that that can take care of their mental health and security in a freelance career but also making sure you're having the time to not only prepare for the role but take yourself out of the role and the other things is i was thinking about it afterwards and thought right we we ask ourselves to be emotionally vulnerable in this art as as artists and I really like the question because I think sometimes this profession asks a lot from us. And I think if people are not only, I think theater has no issue with going to therapy and understanding emotions and all that. But I think sometimes we look at emotional, physical, uh, mental health, uh, if there's an issue, as a weakness. And it's like, wait, how do we support and nurture what people need? to be engaged in a healthy way. And for anybody, you know, on a road to recovery, how do we make it a safe and encouraging place? And I guess it goes back to the same thing that Jim said at his keynote about like people will be accessible when they want to be. And the thing that I'm realizing is the way that we create access for people who don't traditionally have access is to normalize, you know, working with <laughs> getting people, like he said, if you see somebody who has a disability who's your stage manager, you're thinking, oh, right, people who have a disability can stage manage. You know, you can see it in the role. And he talked about it. You can see him as a sound designer. And I thought, right, if we just make sure that we're as open, and I think we, meaning all of us, continue to create access for everyone and make that to normalize it, to model it, to have somebody be seen and not not only to be a role model for the person who might think, oh, I can do that because I saw somebody like me do it, but also people who are in a position of hiring will say, oh, right, that person could do it because other people like that, have, have, like them have done it before. And, you know, just to, I think it's our job. 
that's uh, something about the access. It's part of, part of me is thinking about mental health accessibility because Adina's doing her play and really wanting to normalize the conversation around all of our issues, uh, mental health and vulnerability. And I think she does a great job with the show. And I hope you'll check it out at the Chain Theater, April 21st through May 15th. That's, that's it. And I, I've just really been thinking a lot about it. And this conversation with Jim was fantastic. And uh, should check Check out his film, uh, Crip Camp, if you haven't already. Really worth watching. And I appreciate SCTC, again, for the interviews. All of the conversations were excellent. And, you know, I hope everybody, it feels like indie theater is coming back and we're producing and we're, we're getting out. The Labyrinth Barn series starts, uh, is happening this week. Uh, I directed a reading Saturday night of a play called Is There Even Porn in India by Dipti Pramankar, and it's excellent. And so that's at 59 59th. Check it out. But I'm excited about that because I know when we're at the Labyrinth Barn series that the community is out and we can hang out and see people. And that's what I'm loving about being in rehearsal with Adina and our stage manager is seeing people in person. So I'm talking about that. One of the things we talked about with Jim is the accessibility of Zoom helped for when there are barriers for people to be able to travel and get the things and be able to give keynotes where they don't have to, you know, they can be in LA and not have to be in Memphis, you know, if they have other obligations. And I think all that's great and true and important. And at the same time, I just love being in community and being in person and engaging and being able to you know, I'm looking forward to after the play, going out and talking to people and hearing their thoughts about the play and their experience of the play, but also, you know, just catching up and having incidental conversation about what they're doing and what they're working on and how their health is after these past two years. So excited about all that and really grateful for the conversation. So again, always tell me what you're doing, Patrick, at thefarmtheater.org. Let me know. Uh, happy to share with our community. And again, thank you for listening. And with that, we're out.